Hey, good morning, church. How are you this morning? I said, good morning, church. How are you this morning? There are more of you in the room than I heard the first time. Probably a few more of you in the room than I heard the second time. Hey, can we just thank the the team for leading us this morning? Can we just do that? Love these guys. There's times when I will be worshiping and I literally forget that I have to preach because I'm so caught up in just the glory of being together as a church and crying out to God of how incredible he is, how necessary he is, how wonderful he is. I'm going to move some of this stuff so I don't trip over it, but... When I speak, I like to get closer to you guys, you know. One of these days, the video team's going to hate me. I'm just going to jump right straight down and come right up in your your midst. Uh, For those of you who are visiting, and I think think we have to be aware that there are lots of you who are visiting, um, because January, you're like, man, I need to go to church. Maybe that was a declaration you made for the first time in like a decade, So if you're new, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to be able to share with you this morning. But I I have to share this. As a communicator, my favorite way of communicating is storytelling. Okay, that's just, it is a, a joy to pull apart a story and to share the different things that God wants us to see in the narrative of the lives he's given us to look at, right? But I, in that confession, I just, I need to ask you, I, I, I need to teach today, okay? So is it okay if I teach today? Yeah. Is that all right? If I just teach a little bit and maybe not so many stories, and I'm sorry if you want to write me nasty emails and tell me you came for a story, but you didn't get one. I'm going to teach today, okay? And to do that, I want to start by just asking this question that would pressed in on me this last week as I was developing the ideas and the thoughts that I believe God has for us today. And, and um, it's just this, how many of you know that real and lasting change has to happen in the heart? That it starts with the heart and you can work until you are blue in the face on the behavior. But if it doesn't start in the heart, real and lasting change doesn't happen. Isn't that right, my friends? And, and I think it vexes us on the one hand because we know that. And yet a lot of times we find ourselves over here still trying to work on the behavior, but we've never actually addressed the, the heart itself. And what hit me right between the eyes, which is normally what God has to do for me. Anybody else here got to be hit between the eyes to actually see something and recognize something? Some of you are honest and the rest of you are lying. (laughs) This week, this passage from Psalm 119, which is a really interesting psalm, just jumped off of the pages of scripture and grabbed my face and said, pay attention. It's this nugget tucked in the longest chapter in the entire Bible. Goes down on record for being that. It's one where the psalmist, I think, is just working out some issues of his own heart. 
If you look at the language, the original language, this psalm is kind of all over the place. And there's this way you can see an author like trying to get at what's going on inside. And so it caught my attention. And, and I want to I wanna look at it for just a second as we get started. Psalm 119, 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. Forever to the end. And it was, I think it was the finality of that that, fi- that caught my attention this week and drew me to it. Like this idea that I so long to actually move out of the mess of my own mayhem and life and towards the goodness that God has for me. And I want to do that faithfully to the end, God. Would you mature me? God, help me to mature. God, help me to grow up. And, and what struck me is this statement, because I think it's an interesting choice of words to incline my heart or my behavior isn't going to change until my belief changes, right? Something about my belief has to change first. And, and if something is inclined, that means that it, it, it had to be pointed to. It had to be oriented to. It had to be adjusted towards something because it was originally in the position of decline, right? Or, or maybe, maybe recline. How many of you recline through life? How many of you, the way you woke up in the morning is the way you are the rest of the day? It's not a good thing for most of us. You know, you've heard the saying, you get up on the wrong side of the bed? You better go back to bed. Get up on the other side of the bed. My mom was famous for saying that to us. I think you need to go back to bed and get up on the other side of the bed. Because some of us just go through life reclined. We, we just, we just, however we feel in the morning, that's how we're going to act during the day. But the psalmist is saying, no, 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 look it. You got to incline your heart. And I think... I think what we need to understand is he's saying, set your heart, set your heart on the Lord, set your heart on the one who can and will change your behavior, set your heart to perform God's way, his statutes, God's calling on your life. And it it does not escape me because this is me, it's part of me, that what I think we want to do as humans, I think our tendency is to be like, but I just want to set it, I want to incline it that one time, right? At Bible camp, when I was 12 years old, I want to incline my heart, I want to set it. Remember the infomercial, the rotisserie chicken? Set it and, set it and, do you want to just set your heart and forget it? I think that's our gravitational pull. Our default is to be like, oh, just set it and then I don't want to mess with it again. I want to set it and be done with it. The psalmist is saying, no, 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 look it, look it. I get it. I got to set it and then I got to go check it and then I got to reset it and I got to, I got to go check it and I got to find, uh uh-oh, it's default and then I got to 
reset it. And I want today to dig into what it takes for the change that God wants to bring in our life to be, to be matured, to be permanent, to be to the end forever. Because I so long for that for us as the church. I have, I have seen us walk in the door and experience church, you know, uh, the first couple weeks of January because we committed to change. And so we go to church and then, and then we're, we're going to make some changes in our life. And, and, and it's just like when we walked into the gym and we handed you know, them our membership fee for the year. But it's Valentine's Day today and you ate more chocolate than you know what to do with. And it's only 1030 in the morning. That's not Christ's call on your life, church. But it is our tendency to come through the doors, to draw a little nearer to the Lord, and then to walk right back out those doors and by, let's say, noon today. Well, I said it, and then I forgot it. And, and it's, it's my heart to dive into some really amazing truth in chapter 12 of Hebrews on this idea of setting our heart towards what is real and true about God so that it is transformative for our life to the end, forever to the end. If you've got your flat screen, pull that thing out, go to chapter 12 of Hebrews. We're gonna be in the first 13 uh, verses. We're kind of gonna popcorn around in there. We're gonna be throughout. So get your pen if you take notes and get ready. This chapter of Hebrews was written for the purpose of encouraging, exhortation, encouraging the church during a time of hardship, which for a lot of us, that should start to sound pretty familiar in this last season we've been in. Like a good coach during a halftime of a losing basketball game. This is a pep talk, and our tendency as the team is to be like, it's all the ref's fault. Or he won't pass me the ball when I'm wide open. It's my own teammate's fault. Now, this is a pep talk, and, and we're gonna the point and the purpose of this chapter is all about changing our perspective from calamity to character, from victimization to endurance, from self-pity to perseverance. The author wants to share something with us about our relationship with Jesus that should help us go from mad, spoiled toddlers to mature, seasoned, adult children of God. I hope you want that today. I think the church is desperate for that today. I think the world is desperate for us to be more like Jesus forever to the end. The word endure is sprinkled throughout these passages, okay? You'll see it through the whole book of Hebrews because that's a press. It's, it's an encouragement in this time of difficulty and hardship and suffering. And what endure means in the original language, it's a tough one for us to translate well. It means hyper standing. 
It means the ability as you mature in your faith to take on anything that comes. Gale force winds, tsunamis, the like of which the world's never seen. Uh, uh, Major hurricanes that you would be able to stand with a strength that is not your own, but but is a developed, built strength that God has given you. Hyper standing a glorious image bearer of God that people can look to and be like that. I don't, I want that, whatever that is. Because all around me is calamity. All around me is self-pity. All around me is whining and complaining. All around me is desperation. Uh, That person over there has hyper standing. What is that? Where does it come from? It should be one of the embodiment of the church. But to get there, there is a change, a critical change crucial change that has to happen in our heart. And I think it is this. Tozer uh, poetically laid it out. A.W. Tozer said it this way. What comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, the, the reason is, is this, that what comes to our mind when we think about God can also be one of the most dangerous things about us or for our life. See, because it is really easy, really easy to misappropriate God, to misunderstand God, and to start making God into what we want him to be instead of what he really is. And so that's where we are. There's three things Hebrews, this portion of Hebrews tells, tells us that God is. You can write them down trains. He trains us. He's our trainer, number one. Number two, he's our doctor. He doctors us. And number three, he authors us. He writes our script. We're going to dig into all three of those things in the rest of our time. Let's look at first verse 11. I told you we're going to be all over. We're going to start from the bottom and work back. Verse 11 together, Hebrews 12. For the moment... For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained. There's that word, trained by it. This word in the original Greek, trained, actually is gymnazo. And gymnazo is the gymnasium, or in the original language, it meant strenuous and regular exercise. So the author wants us to be using the physical body as a metaphor to peer into how our soul actually works, how our spirit actually works. And what we need to do right here is right out of the gates, essentially, is to be able to say this, this statement that that you see plastered over gyms when you go to the gym, if you ever go to the gym. And it is no pain, No pain, no gain. gain. This idea is all throughout this particular section of Hebrews because the author is like, look, look at your body. There is an amazing way that we can look at our physical body as a representation of how God will treat our spirit because we are body, mind, and spirit making up the soul. Let's not separate them. Let's put them together. 
And, 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 and this is a pain, this training, as we'll see looking at the body, this is a training that isn't to destroy you. This is a pain that is to build you up and make you better. Uh, look, I wasn't always the physical specimen that I am today. I know that's shocking to some of you. I started working out when I was 13 years old, regularly, four or five times a week. And I did that for 20 years. At 33, isn't that funny that I can mark it? I fell away from healthy routine exercising and I fell far away. And about five years ago, I was like, man, I, I could get back and work out. But I had a construct of me, how I used to be. Not how I was. I had a construct of me in my 20s working out three or four times. You you guys understand where this is going? I went to the gym. I got my membership and they had this free consultation, this assessment of my physical health to start me off. And within five minutes of this assessment, I was huffing and puffing so bad that I started thinking, how long could this physical assessment actually be, right? And this, this wonderful woman who's a trainer there, she's like, you can do it. You can keep going. I'm five minutes in, five minutes. I'm sweating. My heart rate is up at like a level of, I don't know if this is healthy. I'm already experiencing muscle fatigue and burnout. And I'm looking in the eyes of this woman and I'm like, will you please tell me that I'm going to make it through just the physical assessment and not die. And, and what she was doing is she's making me aware in community of some real problems that had developed in my health, in the health of my body, in my physical existence. I think sometimes pain brings an awareness that we need about the health or the condition of our spirit, of our heart. I think sometimes we need to be like, okay, God, okay, why don't you conduct a physical of my soul, of my spirit today? See, here's, here's the deal. Not too much pain. Not too much pain. Not too little pain and not too much pain. We often fail to treat our spiritual development this way, my friends. We tend to treat the maturational process of our characters as if we should do whatever our heart fancies or wills or wants at the moment it wants it based on how we feel rather than what is true. This physical assessment was to show me what was true, not what I felt was true about my body. Unless you hurt your body, this is what, this is what was made very uh, real to me again five years ago. Unless you hurt your body a little bit, you hurt your body a lot. And when we approach our spirit with the idea that it just gets to do whatever it wants, that it can stay in the decline position, declined away from God, that it can stay in the recline position, that we don't have to incline it back to God, that we don't have to experience the correction and the direction of our loving Father, we are in grave danger. 
awareness, just the truth. Here's the problem. I'm going to give you two problems in our approach to God as our ultimate trainer that I see all around us. Here's the problem we have with God as our ultimate trainer. It's often that as our heart declines away from him, we, we treat his correction as punitive or punishing us rather than correction or loving us. And it looks like this. Principle A is the principle of no more, no more, stop. When we decline our hearts, we view God's correction as punishment, which is to question his motive. Look at this, contrast how you would treat your trainer or your coach, right? When, you're, when your trainer or your coach or even, even your band instructor or a teacher, when they ask you for one more rep, for one more pass around the track, for one more sprint, for one more practice, for one more push, you leave that scenario or that setting in your life and you, and you think of them like, man, coach was just crushing me today because he really cares. Because he really cares. He put five more pounds on that bench press and I thought it was going to kill me because he really cares. And he knows the right amount of weight to push you, but not to ultimately harm you. Here's what we do with God. No more, no more, not one more mission. No, not one more life group. Don't. I know I committed to life group, but it doesn't feel good this week. I'm too busy. Don't ask me to do that. Don't ask me to get into a deep and vulnerable conversation with my accountability partner again where I actually go all the way and I'm vulnerable. God, don't. That hurts. No more. No more. We, we act toward God very differently than we act towards a loving trainer. We often feel towards God incorrectly. We might not like one more rep in the gym. We might not like one more pass around the track. But we don't believe our coach wants what's worse for us because he asks for harder work or tougher training. But with God, we default and defect with questions like, why are you doing this to me? Have you asked these questions lately? Why are you doing this to me, God? Why are you asking me to go longer? Give more, lead better. Are you trying to crush me? Why are you allowing this hardship to hurt me, God? It's a default perspective. It's a declining away. Can we... Can we incline to God? The second thing we do is the principle of lots more. And this is when we decline away from God because we assign him the role of our personal genie in a bottle, right? Okay, we did the thing. We served, we worked hard, we, we did the mission, we're following along, we did the exercise regimen, we've stayed at it for longer than three weeks. But now I finished and I want to control my nutritional intake, ultimate trainer God. I don't want what you want for me. I want donuts and Skittles. That's what I want to put in my body right now. And if you could add some pop, that would be really good. Genie in a bottle, come on. This is the kind of nutrition I want to feed my spirit after that kind of intense workout that you put it through. And we treat God like our personal assistant or like our, uh, 
like our genie in the bottle. And you know what our ultimate loving trainer is going to do with that donut that you're about ready to stuff in your face? He's going to smack that thing out of your hand so fast. And he's going to put a dark green protein shake that you don't even want to know what's in it. (laughs) And he's going to say, drink this because it's better for you. Because it will transform you and it will make it possible for you to go forever to the end. So that's the second thing we get wrong is we look at God and we're like, this is the principle of lots more what I want, not what you want. This quote caught my attention as I was digging and studying this week. It's a quote from Robert Morris says, God doesn't want to kill you. He wants to kill what's killing you. My friends, when you look at your life, when you assess the condition of your spirit, it is critically important that you understand God is your ultimate trainer. He knows things about you, the health of your spirit, that he knows best. And you need to submit to the discipline regimen he wants to put you through because he loves you that much. So we get upset with God for training us well, insisting that we grow up. What, ma- what makes you upset? I want to ask you some questions now for just a second. And I, I'm, I'm willing to ask you these questions because I ask myself these questions this week. And at some level, every single one of them was convictional for me. Okay? This might hurt a little bit. Are you upset because God said no to sex outside of marriage and now you're experiencing the embarrassment of that disobedience? Are you upset because you did something God said clearly not to do and it is, it is wreaking havoc or the consequences of that in your life are very painful right now? It is shattering relationships. It's causing mistrust. It's causing issues and problems because you did something God said not to do. Or how about this one? Are you upset because he didn't procure you that new job you wanted, even though three other people worked harder and were better qualified for that job? But you're whining and shaking your fist at God. You didn't give me that. Or how about, are you upset because he didn't rescue the toxic relationship that kept smashing your heart to smithereens? Because he doesn't want your heart smashed to smithereens. So he said, no, no. I'm not going to help you out of that. Or how about this one? Are you upset with him because he won't show up with tens of thousands of dollars to bail you out of your foolish financial decisions? Because you've prayed for the, you know, winning the lottery 8,000 times and God is literally like, I'm not going to help you win the lottery because that will not set you up for the ultimate financial success and freedom I long for in your life that will only keep you in a pattern that is going to wreck you. So no. How about this one? Are you upset with him because nobody likes the way you constantly belittle other people around you so you can't keep any friends? Listen, I promise you, if you will stop begging God for friends and look at the way that Jesus treated other people, 
and look at the way that Jesus interacted relationally with other people, I promise you, if you will pattern your life after those statutes and those ways forever until the end, you will develop good, long-lasting friendships. But not if you keep demanding that he help you, but doing it your own way. Are you upset with God because God won't take your side in a fight with your spouse about your controlling nature. That's all I'm going to say. Are you upset because God doesn't magically fix your kids' grades or behavior at school while you don't raise a finger to parent or guide your kids at home? Listen, this is huge. This week, I've talked with several different leaders in our school systems who told me the exact same thing. Parents have by and large abdicated the role of parent in their home. And for you to expect of your kids that they're just going to have these great grades and they're going to have this great social interaction and they're going to behave like little angels when you won't show them the statutes of God, either through your life or through your speech, that is completely unfair. And God is looking at you and saying, incline your heart. Incline your heart to my statutes. Incline your heart to my way. Parent, I've called you to it. Parent, and watch what happens. Are you upset with God because your church leader, counselor, or accountability partner won't believe your false narrative and capitulate to your ill will, bitter spirit, or toxic tantrums about everything and everybody. Are you upset because your dear accountability partner or your counselor or one of your pastors will not buy into the lies that you are trying to construct to protect your inner heart? Because they're looking back at you and they're saying, no, that's not true. And if you keep going in that direction, it's a deadly direction. How about this one? Are you upset with God over the future of our nation when he's commanded you to be more concerned with his kingdom every day? Or are you upset with Jesus over coming to church during a virus when he's told you very clearly to go be the church no matter where you are? I'm I'm gonna ask you this. We're gonna move into the next one here. What's your heart set on today? What's it set on? Is it time to incline your heart to his statutes, his correction, his discipline, his way, his training, his gymnasio, his strenuous and regular exercise of your spirit for you? The second thing is that he doctors and he parents you lovingly. Now we're going to move through this one, but I literally could not pick just one word. The idea in the original language is so meshed together that it's like a doctor-parent slash between the two. There's, there's these two ideas here and that he does it lovingly. Look at, look at verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every 
son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Nine times an iteration or a form of the word discipline shows up in four verses. That should be a megaphone for us as the reader to say, pay attention to what this means. And it is fascinating. Padeo or padio is actually the word for discipline here. And it is the root word for what we call pediatrician. In modern English, our pediatrician. So it should give us this idea that God is our soul doctor. And he's very aware that many of us are at a toddler or infant stage and that he can do for us some things in our, in our spirit. When it comes to development and measurement and and weighing us and watching our growth and prescribing uh, help for us to mature and to become all that he has called us to be as grown up followers of Jesus. God is our soul doctor. And as a good doctor, he may often tell us to take vitamins, to change our routine or work out or start a weight loss program in our spirit. And then second, he is our loving parent. He, listen, he will tend and nurture and care for and hold you tight when you are sick and make sure that you've got enough covers and put a cold compress on you. This is the idea of this word discipline. And so many of us see discipline and we're turned off and we're turned away. No, no, he's our soul doctor. He's our parent is what it is saying. Look at verse nine. Besides this, We have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Some of us respected them. Some of us did not. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. Man. Ryan Kwan said it this way about discipline. He applies benign pain under controlled circumstances so that we may avoid catastrophic pain later. He applies benign pain under controlled circumstances so that we may avoid catastrophic destruction later, so that we may grow up into the blessing and the goodness that he has if we will follow his ways and his statutes. I want to share just just briefly as an imperfect parent, I want to share one of the things that's really, really important in our home, okay? Um, this, this is what it looks like on an earthly level for me to parent. And I, and I have to do this. I have to actually confess something to you. Okay. I, I'm not sure that I am the world's most rigorous disciplinary. I have four kids. Okay. The, uh, the decimal level of our house is usually higher than that of a rock concert. 
Some of you are, yeah, that's true. The chaos, the, the, w- w- from one mess to the next mess, like I would love to say, because I'm a neat freak, I'd love to say it's just clean in our house all the time, but I've found that that comes up in direct contrast to the crafting and the artistic expression of my children, okay? But for the most part, I want it to be an environment where my kids can thrive and grow and can try new things. And so I'm not, I'm not a crazy, harsh disciplinarian, all right? In fact, there may have been some situations in the past that went something like this. Hey, Dad, we got a little problem over here. What? What happened? Well, we, we were fashioning some shivs uh, out of number two pencils. It was just going to be, you know, a mild war. But I don't know how it happened. I shanked my sister. Like... It, when you walk in that room, it, it looks like a murder scene. And to be really fair, my response to that uh, is probably not as intense as it should be. I'm like, did, it, did she get bandaged? Yep. It, did it hit an artery? Uh, we don't think so. All right, well, <laughs> clean up the mess. We're good, right? But, but that's with that. In our house, lying suffers the biggest consequence I can possibly deliver and the most radical response I can offer to my kids. And here's why. Lying puts my kids in grave danger for the future. Lying is a preferred projection of yourself, which eventually leads to feeding that lie with another alternative reality. And then when you keep feeding it, it layers and coils itself around you and it becomes ingrained and embedded false narrative about who we are. And what we do and what we do when we lie is we take that that preferred version of ourselves, and we put it out and we act like that preferred version is we want other people to believe what that preferred version is. And we put that out there and eventually after feeding it long enough, we start to believe our own preferred version. And when we start believing our own preferred version, then we say to God, no God, this is what I want you to love and care for. I want you to know this person. And we barricade our ourselves in and we barricade God out and away from us. And when it comes to discipline and correction, we create an unknowable self. We're we're unknowable and that leads to unrelatable where God can't relate to us. And that eventually leads to unreachable. Gradually, we become crippled and paralyzed in our relationships because we don't think anyone could ever love you for the real version of you. That preferred version becomes the only version. And eventually, we say to God, love that version. And if truly the crucial things we need as humans are to be known And to be loved, we're saying to God, I don't want you to know me and I don't want you to love me because that's too messy and that's too ugly. Love this and love that. And it becomes a psychosis. And my friends, that is the anti-gospel because God didn't come to to love that lie. He came to love you right where you are, the way you are, the mess you are. And he loves you too much to leave you that way. You know what he wants for you? He's got a preferred version of you. 
Not the preferred version that you are perpetuating. Not the preferred version that has become compulsive. Not the preferred version that keeps you from knowing other people or being known and loved by other people. And so if I let the shanking go in the blood all over the house, and that's a two-minute conversation, if you lie in our house, that's a three-day conversation as a parent. It's going to be an undoing. It's going to be a correcting. It's going to be a working together to get at something that will derail my kids the rest of their life if we don't have that conversation. And my kids know it. They've been through it. But I'm not a perfect parent. Far, far, far from it. But here's the deal. Although I dearly love my kids... I don't come close to loving them the way God loves them or the way God loves me. And if I'm an imperfect parent, you can rest assured God is a perfect parent. Even though he may not be understandable, even though you need to put on the lens of a child and understand there are things you won't understand. He is a perfect parent and he will apply some benign pain in controlled circumstances so that you and I may avoid greater pain or destruction later, okay? Look again at verse 10. Look at this. For they disciplined us, that being our parents, for a short time as it seemed best to them, which is to say it wasn't perfect, but he, God, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness for our good. Our heavenly father doesn't discipline us as it seems best to them. He doesn't discipline us as it seems best to our parents. Uh-uh. I want you to take just a second and I want you to think with me, and I know this is dangerous, but just for a minute, I want you to think about the neighbor kids in your life, okay? Some of you just threw up in your mouth. Because when you think about the neighbor kids, you think words like spoiled. You think words like spoiled rotten. You may even have thought of nastier names, but we won't say those names. Now, I'm not talking about, look, I know some of you parent really well and you have beautiful, wonderful kids and, and I get it. It's tough. I, the, the thing that's allowed to happen in my house where they're bleeding all over and they shank their sibling and we're at Meyer and they do that. That's not cool. <laughs> right. And everybody else may look at my kids and be like, yeah, look at it. See, you're spoiled because it's in public. Will you please not do that in public? You can do it at home, but I don't want you to do it in public kind of thing. Are you with me, parents here? Okay. But I, my kids are not spoiled. They're not. They're also not perfect. But, but here's the thing. I, I know you know of kids that are truly spoiled. And this is some hard truth right here. But you, you know that the reason they're spoiled is because of their parents. Right? It's either because their parents gave them everything they wanted, whenever they wanted, and however they wanted. Or it's because their parents don't give them anything and they neglect them and they're just not involved in their life at all. And it has created a devastated young soul. This is my hope for you today. 
that you understand from our passages of scripture, God will not abuse you by misparenting you. He is not okay with spoiled, rotten followers of Jesus. Okay? Revelation 3.19 says this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. This idea of reproving is that idea that he knows that we're not always gonna get it right. He knows that our heart declines. He knows that we have a tendency to stay in the reclining position. And so he reproves us. That is to say, every single day. For those of you who are worried or you have this scrupulosity that's like, man, once I come to know Jesus, if I ever mess up again, if I ever sin again, if it ever turns south and I, and I did it wrong, and I'm just out, that's done, that's it. God can't forgive me after I came to know Jesus. These verses should tell you that is absolutely incorrect theology, that he knows that you're going to mess up, that he knows you're going to sin, that he knows you're going to gravitate to the wrong thing, but that he won't leave you there. He will reprove you. He will reprove you. He will discipline you again. So your response is to be zealous in your repentance. That is to turn. That is to incline again, to reset again. God. And the third is this, and we're going to be done. He authors you. He authors you completely. He writes the script for your story. When you turn over the ink and you turn over the writing instrument, the pen, or you give him the keyboard and you give him the paper, of your life, when you hand it over, God takes it. He doesn't just ignore it or leave it. He takes it and he starts to write the most incredible, abundant, secure, amazing story of your life that you can possibly fathom. Do you, do you know authors, when they write fiction books, this drives me crazy because I love fiction. I love literature. I read all the time and I'll read these stories and a lot of them, they end like a cliffhanger. You guys know what I'm talking about? When you get to the end of a book and you're like, come on, do not leave me to interpret the remainder of the story. Please don't do that because I know this, 95% of authors actually know the conclusion of the story. They have followed their characters' lives out way beyond the last page and that drives me nuts. It's a personal pet peeve of mine. God doesn't do that. He's the author or the perfecter and the finisher of our faith. And, and this is what you need to hear. Just these ideas. That is security. He said multiple times in the passages we read, if you're not my kids, I don't discipline you. But if you are my kids, I lovingly correct. I lovingly write a new story. I lovingly flip the page. I continue to write. This is the most incredible security that you can have. If you're in a hard place, if you're suffering, if you've been going through difficulty, it is an incredible thing to be able to think, maybe God is using this to shape and form me because I am his child that he loves so much. That's security. And, and the second thing as our author is abundance. Abundance that is different than the kind of abundance we think of as consumers in our part of the world. This is where delayed gratification or obedience brings lasting 
transformation which produces lasting satisfaction. I almost wrote down success, but we, we totally mess up the idea or the construct of success in our world. No, no, this is lasting satisfaction that he brings because you're on point, you're on purpose, you are after the meaning that God has given you for your life. And it may not result in ultimate wealth or lots of stocks and bonds. It may not result in the thing you thought of because you've turned the pen over to him and he's writing the beautiful story that will be yours. That's abundance. Then sanctification. And I, I just had to put this in here. Be, holiness gets a horribly bad rap in our world. We think of holiness exclusively as the do's and the don'ts. That is not what it is. The fruit of holiness is true, lasting integrity. I could preach messages on this. It's fun. Holiness is fun. You're all looking back at me like, no, I've never heard that before. It is the joy of God. Literally says, literally says that he disciplines us so we may share in his holiness. That's sanctification. And then peace. In order to attain peaceful fruit, overflowing peace. Look at 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You want peace? Do, do, do you want real lasting peace that will allow you to stand the gale force winds, the hurricanes of life, the pandemics of life, the politics of life, the putridness of life? Peace yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then last, healing. This is a picture of physical therapy. Look at verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Some of you need to hear that, just that today. That that thing that happened to you when you were four years old that somebody else did to you or that thing that happened to you when you were eight years old that broke something so fundamental inside of you that it has poisoned and it has created a disastrous effect throughout your, your entire life life. God will heal that, but it's going to feel like physical therapy a little bit. I had, I blew my knee out about six years ago. And it was one of those blowouts that was absolutely, I mean, the, the surgeon looked at me, he's like, you, you, you're not going to like this. Um, and I could tell him, I was like, well, I already don't like it. It hurts bad. The, uh, the LCL is bruised. The ACL literally is not there. Your, your, um, your cartilage, your meniscus is, is like, well, it's not like it's supposed to be like, okay? So I need to do a lot of reconstructive work. You need a new ACL. So I did it. I'm telling you, it just was zero fun. It was pain, pain, and more pain. But the eventual outcome was worth every bit of the dedication to stretch beyond my threshold. I hated my physical therapist, which is, are you in here? <laughs> she might be in here. 
at the time, I hated her. I later uh, was able to marry she and her husband several years later. So I love them now. I love them dearly. If you're here, I love you. But in that season, <laughs> the pain that she inflicted on me regularly was awful. And it was for the eventual purpose of healing to stretch and strain and make me better so that I could be agile and deal with those four children that I have to deal with all the time. I'm going to close with this um, or over time, but I had a, a recent conversation with a therapist I see for my back. And my back, it has all kinds of issues. She, she asked me one time, she's like, what, what, do, you, what do you do? Uh, you said you're a pastor. What's wrong with your back? You know? <laughs> well, I grew up on a dairy farm. I did some stuff I probably shouldn't have done then. I weightlifted for 20 years. I probably shouldn't have. And I'm stupid. You know, that probably contributes. Uh, but but she, said, she said to me, you know, you, I asked her, like, is there something I can do? Is there a way that I can you know, get better. And she said, well, you are getting old. I didn't love hearing that. And I said, yeah, I hate getting old. Said something like, yeah, I hate getting old. And then she made an observation I think is really, really important for us. She, She said something like this, you know, not everybody's lucky enough to get old. And I want you to think about that in relation to your spirit. It's not luck. It's inclination. God wants you to incline your heart to perform his ways forever to the end so you can grow old and be a mature, healthy, abundant follower of Jesus. And when people think about you, they don't throw up in their mouth because you're a spoiled brat. The opposite happens. They look at you and they say, there is hope there. There is life there. There is goodness there. There's help there. There's somebody that cares about me that I could actually get help from right there. That life is the life I want. How do you get that life, Jesus? His correction, his direction. I want us to start getting old in our faith together. Okay. Now, John Wesley, I I thought came across this this week in my digging and I want to end with this and wherever, whatever this message has done to your heart, whatever thoughts, wherever you're going, I just would ask you to consider these words of John Wesley from so long ago, but they're so powerful and so specific today to us, to this topic. And so I would just ask you as I pray, if there, is, if there is something stirring in your heart, you can pray aloud with me. You could pray these words over your life. You could just in quiet in your own soul, you could pray whatever possible. You can get in the aisle and pray. I don't care, but I want you to reckon with what this communication to God could mean over your life to change something permanently and indelibly in your perspective of your life before God. Okay, here's what John Wesley said. I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. 
put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full, let me be empty, let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. So God, today we pray that prayer. And I'm not sure the disposition of hearts in this room or the approach to you, but I hope with my whole being that what we have learned from this amazing passage in Hebrews 12, that you wanted to speak to us, that that would indelibly mark us and that we would recognize how desperately we need to be focused on resetting and inclining our heart to you so that you can discipline, correct, love, parent, author, doctor, and train us, God. As we leave here today, may this linger and stay in our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. You're, you're dismissed. Thank you.